Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College, with support from PolicyForum.net. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. In today's program, we're bringing you the third and final instalment of our Indo-Pacific Futures series. This episode focuses on geoeconomics. Here's Chris Farnham to kick things off. A common debate is whether the world is experiencing a second Cold War with the rising tensions between the United States and China. One of the arguments against Cold War 2.0 is the existing deep economic interconnectedness between China and America, which was not apparent between the Soviet Union and the US-led Western Bloc. However, Cold War terminology at least is starting to creep into the picture with talk of economic decoupling. In this, the third and final episode of our special three-part series on the future of the Indo-Pacific strategic landscape, we're going to take a look at the rise of geoeconomics and what it means for the future of regional security. In particular, we focus on supply chain security and economic decoupling as two key geoeconomic trends in the Indo-Pacific, and consider how these trends might play out over coming decades. To do this, we spoke with economists, strategic thinkers, researchers, and people with policy-making experience to define the issues, think about what they look like today, and where they may go in years to come. As part of this discussion, you're going to hear a few acronyms that are worth explaining at the outset. CPTPP stands for the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is the agreement that replaced the old and original TPP. LIO refers to the Liberal International Order, a theoretical framework which will be described in detail later in the episode. RCEP stands for Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which is a regional free trade agreement including 15 Indo-Pacific countries and SOE refers to state-owned enterprises. And just a quick note, the majority of these discussions were recorded whilst the contributors and yours truly were in lockdown due to the COVID-19 pandemic. So bonus points will be awarded to listeners who can spot the cameo appearances by family members in the background. Let's start this discussion by defining what we mean by the term geoeconomics. Here's Jeff Wilson from the Perth US Asia Centre with his definition. Geoeconomics is the use of economic instruments, things like trade agreements, investment deals and multilateral economic architectures, as a means of great power politics. It occurs when governments use those kind of economic parts of the foreign policy toolkit, not for economic purposes, such as building industries or opening new export markets, 
but specifically for the advancement of their strategic and political agendas in the diplomatic space. Now, to give us something of a scholarly and theoretical perspective on geoeconomics, here's Shui Gong from the Rajaratnam School of International Studies and Sir Roland Wilson Foundation scholar Helen Mitchell. Generally speaking, geoeconomics has been used interchangeably with economic statecraft, which is the use of economic instruments to promote and defend national interests to produce beneficial geopolitical results. Geoeconomic activities is generally a zero sum. It is quite different from the concept of mutual gains, relative gains. It requires the national state to benefit at the expense of other countries. The concept is contradictory to the positive sum game, which is featured by interdependency, a cornerstone of international liberal order. You could define geoeconomics as the role of economic policy in foreign or strategic policy. It's not a new concept. Um, You could trace it back to, for example, boycotts that were happening in ancient Athens, um, sort of start of the Polynesian War. Academics that work on geoeconomic issues often come from different disciplinary backgrounds and sometimes they work between disciplines. So you can think about international political economy, security studies, international relations disciplines, as well as more traditional economists. Finally, here's Roland Raja, an economist and former policymaker from the Lowy Institute, on how we might think about geoeconomics. When it comes to geoeconomics, there is no agreed definition. When most people talk about geoeconomics, they're usually coming more from the security perspective and they're more thinking about how particular economic instruments can be used for geopolitical or security-related ends. So that's your carrot and sticks kind of approach. So on the sticks side, it's financial sanctions, it's trade coercion. On the carrot side, it's maybe development assistance or trade deals, that sort of thing. I mean, I take a broader approach to thinking about geoeconomics is really quite generally being the increasing overlap between economic and security issues, particularly with the changing global dynamics the increasing encroachment of security-related issues into what have traditionally been economic issues. So this is particularly around issues like trade, investment, technology, development, policy and assistance, even the movement of people. And I think the key thing that this then brings up is that you then need a much more multidisciplinary approach to thinking about things. And I think that's where the real challenge lies to kind of caricature things People coming from the security perspective will tend to take a more zero-sum analysis focused on threat minimization and very concerned about issues of intent from potential adversaries. By contrast, uh, economists, and you know, I'm, I'm an economist, we tend to think in terms of positive sum and things that may get in the way of positive sum cooperation. We tend to think in terms of cost-benefit analysis And we tend to focus much more on the mechanics of how things work. So in the sort of security speak, more on the issues of capability. So I think that's the real tension. Geoeconomics is that space where there's this overlap between a need to look at things from both a security and economic lens. And that does mean taking a multidisciplinary approach. So that gives us a broad idea of what geoeconomics is. But why has it recently become such a prominent feature of discussions regarding the regional strategic landscape? Here's Ben Herskovich from the Australian National University and Jeff Wilson to answer that question. 
all countries in the world today to varying degrees are interconnected. And as a result of that enmeshment, that interconnectedness, you end up with a whole host of different points of vulnerability in the sense that if another sovereign state seeks to change the policies you have or influence you in some way, there are all of these points of leverage that they can push on to achieve their goals. That baseline fact of interconnectedness, I think, is the key reason why we're having these discussions. But related to that is the fact that we're entering this period of increasingly intense great power competition where there's this massive power transition to China, to East Asia more broadly. And Beijing is seeking to achieve a very ambitious foreign and defense policy set of goals and is increasingly using the tools of economic statecraft to achieve those outcomes. In recent years, we've seen a significant rise in the use of geoeconomic strategies by a lot of governments. As great power competition between China and the United States, but indeed between many different countries is intensified, a lot of governments have looked towards the economic part of the foreign policy toolkit to prosecute rivalries and conflict. We've seen trade warfare, we've seen investment races, and we've also seen competing designs to restructure the global economic architecture, all made as attempts to project power by different combatants in great power rivalries. It has become a prominent topic because it is much cheaper to do so compared to a military deterrence, military coercion. It is also acceptable by the domestic audience because it requires less manpower. And some domestic interest groups, they may actually get benefit for example, the Chinese SOEs, they are the larger drivers and also beneficiaries from China's flagship economy foreign policy Belt and Road Initiative. That was Shui Gong explaining the political economics of political economy. But should we understand great power competition to be at the heart of geoeconomics today? Of course, because of growing tensions between the two great powers, China and United States. Especially in recent years, we've seen the Chinese government has been using different forms of geoeconomic incentives and punishments to achieve its strategic goals or to serve its national interest as well as to defending its image. In a place like Australia, we tend to have a really inward-looking view of geoeconomics and the rise of economic statecraft. We're having this conversation at this particular moment in history because geoeconomics is now really impacting on Australia and economic statecraft is impinging on our interests. But the reality is that geoeconomics and the use of economic statecraft have been with us for decades, centuries, millennia even. And so, for example, if you're Cuba or if you're Iran or if you're a range of other countries, you'll be really familiar with the pain and difficulties associated with other states using economic statecraft against you. So, for example, the United States has had a longstanding trade embargo on Cuba, really severe sanctions against Iran. And so in that sense, there is nothing new about geoeconomics and economic statecraft, but we are seeing it directed against us. And that understandably is prompting a whole host of concerns and intense debate in Australia. Ben Herskovich provides us with a timely reminder that geoeconomics is far from novel and that the impact it has on contemporary life is often a matter of perspective. So that's geoeconomics as a concept. Let's now dive into some of the key trends, starting with supply chain security with Dirk van der Klee from the Australian National University. Put simply, a secure supply chain versus a fragile supply chain is one that when something goes wrong, you can easily adapt it to different situations. 
it actually can be hard to tell if your supply chain is secure. Often the supply chains that we see now for products have thousands of sub-products that might come from somewhere else and thousands of sub-sub-products. And so there are small components in there that may eventually not be available for one reason or another. We've seen it in the automotive industry with semiconductors. The second something doesn't go the way that it's expected, the supply chain breaks down. I think of it in terms of two key risks. One is the potential disruption to the supply chain itself, so a supply side issue. And the other is a potential surge in the need for whatever it is in that supply chain that it's providing. So COVID-19, of course, is being a reason which has driven a lot of the extra emphasis on supply chain security. You know, the disruption to supply chains is caused, particularly when China was in lockdown, caused you know, severe shortages in a range of areas, particularly in, in terms of electronics and manufacturing. That's a supply side disruption. PPE and other medical equipment and vaccines and vaccine inputs that's a demand side issue where there's been a huge surge in demand and need for these products. And the question there is whether or not the supply chain has surge capacity. I think also it's important to think about what supply chain security doesn't necessarily look like as well, which is this push towards reshoring of what are perceived to be critical supply chains. On the one hand, that might seem reassuring because then you feel like you're in control of that supply chain kind of the opposite of supply chain security because you're concentrating all of your risk within your own country. Again, COVID-19 provides a neat example. You're reliant on supply chain solely contained within your own country, and then you have to impose a lockdown. Well, then you've got a bit of a problem, and it could have been solved if you had a diversified set of, of international suppliers. That was Roland Raja breaking supply chain security into the elements of supply and demand and placing it in a context that most of us are familiar with. Now, here's Jeff Wilson to explain why supply chain security has increased in strategic importance for countries of the region over and above the recent shock of the COVID-19 pandemic. Supply chain security has always been a problem. There's always been a risk that natural disasters or weather events that affect shipping might interrupt supply chains. The new risk is that as governments use geoeconomic tools to fight rivalries, some of those tools such as uh, trade warfare or tariffs and barriers to trade, might also disarticulate certain links in supply chains for critical goods. A classic example we often talk about is the rare earth minerals that are used in a number of technology and defence products. These are mostly supplied from, the ch from China, and the Chinese government has on several occasions made threats to cut their supply off during the trade war that's ongoing between the United States and China. So as we see more geoeconomic conflict, the pre-existing supply chain security risks we've always had to live with have increased in intensity by possibly an order of magnitude. Stay with us. We'll be right back after this short break. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There have been a number of strategies and tactics implemented to achieve supply chain security. Roland mentioned onshoring of manufacturing as one example. We've also heard about diversification as a way of increasing resilience. But, as mentioned at the opening of this episode, one geoeconomic trend related to supply chain security has resurrected a ghost of Cold War past. Here's Shui Gong with some context. During the Cold War, the economic decoupling was quite complete and overwhelming with two blocks established by the two superpowers. But this time, decoupling in our era is driven not only by threat perception, but also by the peacetime populism, uh, exacerbated by a global coronavirus pandemic that has shaken decades of faith in globalization. So what exactly is economic decoupling? Here's Jeff Wilson and Shui Gong with some definitions and descriptions. Economic decoupling is a term that analysts are using to describe a process where two countries that are deeply economically connected start deconnecting or decoupling with each other, not for economic reasons, but due to political or diplomatic tensions. Decoupling refers to the deliberate dismantling the existing interdependence and economic and social relationship. Economic decoupling can be very brutal because it requires the government legal and administrative toolkits and may go against the business interests and market incentives. Both decoupling and efforts to achieve supply chain resilience are a product of the broad geoeconomic trends that we're seeing, I would tend to see decoupling not as a formal policy goal, but more as a descriptive output. It's indicators that we're seeing of geoeconomics is this trend towards decoupling where economies are being pulled apart because of the trends of geoeconomics. Whereas supply chain resilience, I would tend to see that as an explicit, clear policy goal. It's very directed. Governments seek to achieve supply chain resilience and put in place a whole host of measures to ensure that they have security of supply and they're not reliant on suppliers that they consider to be unreliable. They are different units of analysis, if you like. Decoupling is more just a measure of the way in which economies are being pulled apart by geoeconomic forces, whereas supply chain resilience is more a policy debate surrounding what can we do to create supply chains which are less susceptible to pandemics and other kinds of macro shocks to the system. But both supply chain resilience and decoupling are being driven by the same kinds of underlying trends, i.e. concerns that other countries will use companies from their countries to coerce or to intimidate or to achieve influence or to pursue espionage or concerns that other countries will use their dominance over manufacturing supply or dominance over the supply of raw materials to coerce or pursue their strategic objectives. That was Ben Herskovich providing us with a policy lens with which to consider the strategy of decoupling. So we know that economic decoupling was a feature of the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States, 
But during the Cold War, China was not permanently tied to the Soviet bloc and indeed split from Russia to pursue its own strategic path. So how has China approached the issue of exposure and vulnerability of strategically significant elements of its own national economy? China, in some ways, has been pursuing its own form of decoupling for more than a decade. And the fundamental goal is to rely less on the U.S. and Western suppliers. Behind this is the techno-nationalism that can be dated back to the late Qing dynasty. This techno-nationalism is a mercantilist behavior that tries to link a nation's tech capabilities and enterprises with issues of national security, economic prosperity, and social stability. And one way of decoupling throughout the history of the Chinese government is to strengthen the self-reliance. For example, President Mao, the Chairman Mao, has been using uh, the whole of nation system to encourage the workers, the farmers to invest in the steel industry uh, to support its defense uh, industry. And then after the opening up, uh, when China started to engage and immerse itself in international supply chain, it also started to distance itself from the over-dependence on Western tech by engineering series of industrial policies that highlights autonomy and self-reliance. So different from many Western countries, China's high-tech industry is supported by the whole of nation system again. And this self-reliance requires its own dependent supply chain, and that is pretty much monopolized by the SOEs. Hu Jintao's government issued the ever first opinion on strengthen and enhance dependent innovation capability policies. And in subsequent years, the Chinese government issued different national policies to develop its high tech industry. And the most often heard one is the Made in China 2025. Economic decoupling is certainly already a thing. We're seeing it between the United States and China in our region, and it is already happening. The big question is how far and how much. The notion that the US and China, or indeed anyone in the US and anyone in China could completely decouple is, is somewhat fanciful. There's no economy in the world that can completely provide all of the inputs and all of the demand it needs for its own industrial structure. And indeed, the notion that anyone could not have a economic relationship with the world's first and second largest economy is practically impossible. We already witnessed high-tech decoupling, and also we've seen reshoring, uh, for example, in essential materials like personal protective equipment. At this point, partial decoupling is already taking place. Why I think it's not doable, at least for a short term, is because in international political economy, the supply chain linkage is a multidimensional concept. It has already been so deeply intertwined, and it will be difficult to completely decouple the limits of decoupling are such that we're unlikely to see a total decoupling at the national level. Typically, decoupling is much more targeted in that even if you are incredibly hawkish, you'll still see economic upside in remaining deeply interconnected with the other country when it comes to a whole host of different manufacturing products, when it comes to a whole host of different raw materials. And so there are very clear limits on decoupling placed by the logic of economic rationalism, essentially, in that the costs of decoupling are often very high. So what we've just heard from Jeff Wilson, Shui Gong and Ben Herskovich, respectively, 
is that overlap of economics and security, which Roland Raja spoke of earlier in the episode, and a reminder that policy making requires balancing risks with opportunities and costs. To dig a little deeper into the impact of decoupling and to provide a suggestion on how better to frame it, if it is indeed not actually decoupling in the purest sense, we spoke to Alicia Garcia Herrero from the Texas. We've used decoupling to basically refer to increasing the distance from two economies that used to be highly integrated. When we say that China and the US are highly integrated, I think we should also look at the bar. Is it really so? And the answer is no. US foreign direct investment in China is ridiculously low compared to US foreign investment in the EU. If you look at the stock of investment, it's not even a tenth. Financially, even less, because China wasn't open for a long time. So the amount of financial integration is rather limited. So, so in a nutshell, US and China are not so integrated. Are they in a decoupling mode? I would argue not really decoupling. That's a strong, because decoupling means like a sudden, sharp reduction, if not stop of the economic relations. I don't think that's what we are seeing. That's why the word bifurcation has been used, in my opinion, much more appropriately. You keep the degree of integration we've reached, but you try to diversify from that level. And you do not increase the stock of trade, investment, you name it. You may want to keep the knowledge and maybe open doors and, you know, people to people movement, but you, you make sure that it doesn't go beyond. Bifurcation, I do think, is a reality on global value chains, on trade, on tech, and as a newer trend, finance. Shui Gong also notes that decoupling isn't always a bilateral dynamic and that it can also be an unintended consequence from loosely related policy decisions. Who is decoupling from who? Most of the debates are talking about China and United States, but it looks like the US is also decoupling uh, gradually from the Indo-Pacific. For instance, it is missing in two of the largest regional trade agreements. Uh, RCEP and CPTPP. RCEP will reorient trade and investment ties away from global linkages toward a much more regionally concentrated relationship in East Asia. And we've seen deteriorating trans-Pacific trade relations because of the withdrawal from the TPP of the United States together with the East Asian cooperation in the COVID-19 crisis has lent great support for RCEP. And whilst these policy decisions are made at the national level, the consequence can often be experienced systemically. Decoupling is contradictory to the notion of globalization as one of the fundamental pillars of international liberal order if uh, the United States and its value-based allies are still upholding the post-Cold War LIO how they model through the urgency for decoupling that goes against the core value of LIO. Gong Shui also notes that decoupling isn't always a bilateral dynamic, and whilst these policy decisions are made at the national level, the consequences can often be experienced systemically. The breakdown of the liberal international order might be triggered by increasing economic decoupling. This order is role-based and does respect liberal values like democracy, freedom, and human rights. This is understood as a framework of so-called liberal institutionalism. It's about these ideas that states can help each other in a positive way in a more institutional setting. 
that can be through like international organizations or maybe it can be like multilateral coordination. People believe that this kind of liberal international order can lead to stability and maybe peace. The liberal international order is essentially a theoretical framework which argues that the liberalization of international relations will increase the likelihood of mutual gain and decrease the likelihood of international conflict. Underpinning this liberal international order is the openness of markets, where states trade and exchange on the basis of mutual gain. This system is rules-based, with laws applying equally to all parties, and where problems are solved collectively, largely through inclusive multilateral organisations such as the World Trade Organisation and the United Nations. This system theoretically increases the costs of defection, which in the end, as we've just heard from Tokyo University's Masato Matsuoka, makes conflict less likely. So the first question that comes to mind is, if the liberal international order is beginning to unravel, will we see the likelihood of conflict increase? If the economic decoupling further intensify, whether there will be the likelihood for conflicts, it will be like the viewpoint of the realists in the sense that it will be more lack of order. There might be the likelihood of conflicts, but I won't argue that there will be like more possibility to halt conflicts, but rather it's not predictable. It can be anarchical. We may see more balance of power mechanism in the, in the Pacific region. If economic integration between the United States and China didn't lead to greater harmony, but the disintegration of economic ties also doesn't necessarily increase the likelihood of a hot conflict, does that imply that the theory of a liberal international order requires fundamental revision? Taking the example of US-China, some scholars may say that even though they may have built this economic relationship depend on each other, but it doesn't really attach to liberal values. Some people may say that it's a lesson for the Obama administration. They believe that China might become more liberal by using this engagement policy, but then it's not how it works. So in that regard, I may not say that liberal institutionalism is not usable theory anymore. I think this liberal institutionalism didn't fit the case of US-China. In that case, maybe we should be asking whether decoupling or bifurcation between the US and China actually signals an unravelling of the liberal international order. I don't know that we ever had a liberal international order per se. <laughs> I think we had maybe a broadly liberal international order among non-communist countries during the Cold War. And post-Cold War, there was an effort to truly internationalise that liberal order beyond the world of the liberal democracies. But that effort was never fully realised. And it was always aspirational. And certainly we're seeing a winding back, broadly speaking, of liberal principles, but from a relatively low base. Ironically, on the one hand, spreading the liberal democracy around the world is a cornerstone of building the liberal international order. But on the other hand, as history has shown, interfering the politics in other countries is extremely difficult. And attempting such ambitious social engineering on a global scale is doomed to backfire. For example, in the latest sanctions by US, EU, UK and Canada for alleged uh, human rights abuses in Xinjiang and the ban on the import of Xinjiang products actually backfired. 
both the Chinese leadership and the Chinese people, they perceive the boycott as hostile foreign forces defaming China and curtailing uh, China's rights. So this ideological-based move actually further strengthened the unity of the CCP and the Chinese society. This kind of ideological-based demand also makes it difficult for the pro-reformists and the liberalists inside of China to promote the liberal ideas and the revision of Chinese human rights because they fear of taking the wrong position in China's domestic context. That was Ben Herskovich in Suergong pointing out that not only is the liberal international order highly partial, but that it's also somewhat imperfect at its foundation. So that deals with the theoretical element. But what are the practical? Is this a reversal of economic globalization? We went too far with globalization. We didn't incorporate costs that are not economic, but are relevant. Environmental costs are surely relevant. And then, of course, the political economy costs. Yeah, I mean, pushing the world towards kind of this impasse of two potential hegemons. One, getting there through generation of wealth coming from huge exports without perhaps having had the time to mature to become an hegemon. I know China has a wonderful history and it's been a major economy and a leader in many ways for centuries. But we're talking about China in 49. And that's a reality that also happened to Germany. And I don't want to make a comparison with Germany for any other reason than the fast recovery of the German economy after the First World War. It was too fast and that's too unstable. Countries need time to become hegemons. And in a way, that huge generation of wealth because of these massive exports pushed China beyond what was warranted, even welcome. But because of that, we need to rethink and realize that the consequence of all of this is going to be deglobalization. Maybe not massive, we're not going to go back to the Middle Ages, but countries are going to want to control the production of strategic goods. Because we learned from COVID that even masks could be strategic if you don't have them at the right time. And countries basically ban exports. So I, I'm just saying that countries are starting to become very aware that when they really need something, it might not be there unless they produce it. That is a humongously important reason for some degree of deglobalization. That was Alicia Garcia-Herrero speaking about what decoupling might mean for globalization as a whole. So what of the future? How should we expect the rise of geoeconomics, the efforts to secure supply chains, the bifurcation, or even the decoupling of national economies and the degree of deglobalization to shape the future of the Indo-Pacific strategic landscape. Here's Jeff Wilson to give us his perspective on plausible future scenarios. So the question is going to become, how far does this decoupling process play out? In what industries do we decouple? And in what industries do we stay coupled together? The areas that decoupling are probably going to go the furthest is in a lot of critical industries where governments are currently attempting to develop more secure supply chains given their outsized risk. Um, A good example would be the industries identified in the Biden administration's recent executive order on supply chain security, Um, critical minerals, battery products, medical products, and semiconductors. Um, Given the huge importance of those industries to the United States, the US government is looking to develop new supply chains that are not dependent on China in those industries. 
So they would be the places where we'll see decoupling advance fastest in most incoming years. It's very hard to say precisely how Biden administration policy will develop over the course of the next few years, but the early signs are that we are seeing a really quite intense doubling down of the US's use of economic statecraft. There are no signs this upsurge in geoeconomics is going away anytime soon. This is driven by a whole host of very complex factors, including what Beijing is doing, which is shaping what Washington is doing. So the fact that Beijing is essentially doubling down on these policies of economic statecraft and going toe-to-toe with the United States in its great power competition is further entrenching the US push towards economic statecraft. It's kind of a perverse thing in that often we want to say that the Trump administration was in so many ways an aberration and the way in which they made use of the levers of economic statecraft in a really belligerent way was this bizarre moment in US political and foreign policy history and with a new democratic president that would fade away. But in substantive respects, it seems as if the Biden administration has embraced these core elements of Trump's foreign and defense policy, and in particular, that use of geoeconomics. And so it's almost a case of the Trump presidency is over, but Trumpism lives on, at least in terms of the willingness to use coercive economics to pursue US foreign and strategic policy goals. That was Ben Herskovich casting his vote for bifurcation over comprehensive decoupling. We asked Shwe Gong what her vision of the impact of economic decoupling might be on the regional strategic landscape. The geopolitical and geoeconomic sector will definitely witness two thick bounded regional order with China and the United States taking the lead respectively. But I still think it's not really feasible. I mean, it really depends on what kind of decoupling in a high sector those two governments want or trying to pursue. For those two exclusive thick bounded regions, they are overlapping members. For example, the China's leading East Asian economy bloc, while the United States, if not at the global level, but at least in the Indo-Pacific level, you have Australia, you have New Zealand, you have Singapore on both sides. So how the governments and policymakers can completely decouple and dismantle the chains, not only in production, but also the side chains like human mobility, knowledge, capacity building, in in that kind of regard. If the government's cannot tell us what exactly they want to achieve in decoupling. I don't think it will be feasible because the path dependence of globalization has created such a complex web that requires different parts of the world to work together, to assemble, to produce, to distribute. It will be very brutal and it will be very costly to see the decoupling all of a sudden. Shui Gong also reminds us that sometimes strategic policy making isn't afforded clear-minded deliberation, but can be beholden to the momentum of national sentiment. If regional governments cannot address domestic nationalism, populism well, we will see national interest oriented and non-intermediary form of trade that may not follow international norms, but rather in the more bilateral settlements. So even though we will still have globalization, but a largely localized matter of globalization with national interests at its core is highly likely to be implemented by respective governments. So if we were to give policymakers a left and right arc of plausibility, 
What would be the best and worst case scenarios regarding the impact of geoeconomics on the Indo-Pacific strategic landscape? Here's Jeff Wilson with his left and right of arc. The best case scenario for economic decoupling is one in which critical and strategic industries, particularly in high technology sectors, particularly in medical products and scientific and defence applications, become increasingly decoupled, but they don't become completely national, they just move around to different partners. We've seen countries adopting a what they often call a, a China plus one strategy in Vietnam, where they move some of their supply chain out of mainland China and into Vietnam in order to provide a hedge against a political risk, such as a trade war with the PRC. On the other side of the spectrum, the worst case scenario would be outright trade warfare. If geoeconomic conflicts become more significant, governments continue to use tariffs as a way to score political points, those trade barriers may become so large that it starts pricing out even non-critical and non-strategic industries from trade between countries. That would look a lot more like a deglobalization process where the world may split up into competing politically organised economic blocks, not in a dissimilar way to which the world was divided in a, into a Western economic block and a Soviet economic block during the Cold War. At the more worrying end of the spectrum, the outcome that I would see would be this continuation of great power competition leading to economic statecraft shaping more and more arenas of economic connectivity and broader people-to-people connectivities. Right now, we have this trend towards intense concern about supply chains and a movement towards decoupling when it comes to the innovation space and high-end tech. And that's incrementally, slowly but surely, filtering through to the broader research environment in universities, in think tanks, in centers of innovation. And that's a kind of creeping decoupling that is spreading to additional arenas. And I think the worst case scenario that's broadly realistic is that you'll see just an ongoing creeping of that movement towards decoupling, heightened concerns about economic engagement and connectivity and take us in the direction of a more closed off, less interconnected, less open world between the United States and China, but that will probably spread out further as countries in the region as a whole feel pushed to either increasingly align themselves with China or on the other side, do the same thing vis-a-vis the United States. And I think this creeping bifurcation of the Indo-Pacific is, I would say the worst case realistic scenario that we might get The best case realistic scenario that I'm looking at in the decades ahead is one in which that bifurcation is stalled essentially as a result of the logic of economic rationalism. Countries across the Indo-Pacific and even the United States and China will see the ongoing intense benefits of maintaining broad-based economic relationships and also maintaining a good exchange of information, research, people, etc. And so we don't end up with this deeply bifurcated, divided region. That was Ben Herskovich with his left and right arcs of plausibility. Here's Dirk Vanderclay with his own. What's the greatest threat to supply chain security for the next 10 to 15 years? Well, yes, geoeconomics is one, but I'm actually going to raise another issue here that I think is perhaps even bigger, and that is climate change. With greater rate of natural disasters, we will see 
natural resources in mines be stopped more regularly. Shipping will become just more difficult. Ports will be inaccessible for longer periods of time than we would otherwise see. And so if you have a concentrated geographical location for your supply chain, it's quite feasible that certain things are going to be inaccessible for longer periods of time than they are now. So I view that as the most likely form of disruption, but it'll be intermittent across a whole range of industries. If we're thinking about the bigger picture, what will be less likely, but probably more damaging is if we see economic decoupling between the US and China. The increasing frequency and severity of natural disasters, partly being driven by climate change, as well as the increasing infringement of you know, human civilization on the environment and thus greater exposure to those risks as well. Those risks are only increasing. On the other hand, then looking at the China-related issues, we see governments around the world are now much more conscious about this and looking to do something about it. You know, in a world where sensible policy is pursued, that is very targeted to truly critical supply chains that do genuinely face security-related issues, and that there is still a strong emphasis on maintaining quite a diversified supply chain. What we're talking about is a heavily globalized and heavily integrated world economy. Barring China experiencing a severe crisis, China is probably going to continue to become bigger within the world economy. It is going to at least maintain its position regard global trade, particularly within manufacturing on the supply side, but on the demand side, going to be much more important. One thing that is really important for us to be aware of is what exactly is driving China, both from an economic and a strategic perspective. So we think about China's economy and its need to meet growth targets. It's also managing serious financial sector risks. And at the same time, policy goals, especially that have come out in recent years under President Xi, really suggest China's view of a shift in the global balance of power towards China over the next two decades. But of course, in the meantime, China's still developing. It's very interested, obviously, in you know, leading in strategic technologies. So there's going to be a move and driving forces in China for it itself to become more self-sufficient in some areas, for itself to diversify. But also a really important agenda is going to be China's own development and its regional power and influence. China has already been and is going to continue to use its market power for foreign policy and, and strategic ends. We've already seen that it can really weigh up the cost of using economic punishments like access to its consumer market, while it also shores up access to resources and other sources of growth. So this is what, when people talk about carrots and sticks approach, that's what I think we're going to see more of. And that was Roland Raja with his future forecast of plausible outcomes, along with Helen Mitchell on how we might factor in expectations of China's behaviour on the international stage. But the final word for this episode goes to Alicia Garcia Herrero, as she reminds us that the policy decisions we make have real world consequences for how we all live. For somebody who actually learned German in East Germany, I can tell you that a world of decoupling is not of my liking. It brings us to what I call strangers. Basically, the West becomes a stranger for China. That's very scary, very difficult, and has from economic to social consequences, as East Germany obviously demonstrates, let alone North Korea and so on. That's an extreme scenario of a cold war that didn't have 
a big chunk of globalization before. So it might not be as extreme. But even, even if we just get close to that, it's still very scary socially. And that's a fitting way to bring this special series on the future of the Indo-Pacific strategic landscape to a close, with the central point that to ensure a secure and stable future, we have to make the right decisions today. The ANU National Security College and the National Security Podcast would like to thank all of those who contributed to this episode. In order of appearance, they were Dr. Jeffrey Wilson, Research Fellow at the Perth US Asia Centre. Professor Shreya Gong, Assistant Professor for the China Program at the S. Raja Ratnam School of International Studies, Nanyang Technological University, Singapore. Miss Helen Mitchell, Sir Roland Wilson, PhD Scholar at the Australian National University. Mr. Roland Raja, the Lead Economist and Director of the International Economics Program at the Lowy Institute. Dr. Benjamin Herskovich, Research Fellow at the ANU School of Regulation and Global Governance. Dr. Dirk van der Klee, Research Fellow at the ANU School of Regulation and Global Governance. Ms. Alicia Garcia-Herrero, Chief Economist for Asia-Pacific at Natixis and Senior Fellow at European Think Tank Bruegel. Dr. Masato Matsuoka, Lecturer at the Department of Language Studies, Taikyo University. And we'd also like to thank Ms. Gemma Dabkowski for all the groundwork that went into making this episode possible. I'm Chris Farnham and I hope that you've enjoyed this special series looking at the future of the Indo-Pacific strategic landscape on the National Security Podcast. And with that, our Indo-Pacific Futures Podcast series comes to a close. If you missed episode one or two, we'll pop a link to those in the show notes. And don't forget, all the analysis from the Indo-Pacific Futures Project is available on the Futures Hub website. There's a link in the show notes for this too. Until next time... Thanks for tuning in.